0: Well, our scripture reading this morning for the sermon is from Galatians. We're just going to keep going through Galatians. And we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. So this is more practical instruction coming from the Apostle Paul. So remember, we we looked uh, in a, a few sermons, three sermons. We looked at chapter 5. Dealing with neonomianism and antinomianism, then we looked at the doctrine of sanctification uh, with vivication, where we are made new and in a sense, raised up to new obedience, while also being mortified in the sense that our flesh is mortified. And so we looked at what that looks like, how to walk in step with the Spirit. We've considered the fruit of the Spirit as well as the works of the flesh and what those two lifestyles look like. And so now Paul is addressing corporate issues in the church. And he is showing us here how to create a gospel community. And so that is the title of my message this morning, is Creating Gospel Community. Again, Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Brethren... If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Thus far for the reading of God's holy and inspired word, may he bless it to us. One thing that we all desire in life is a sense of belonging. Whether we admit it or not, every single one of us here this morning, has a natural desire to be part of a community that feels safe and secure, where we can experience successes and failures in life, where we can grow and struggle, and where we can serve and be served, knowing that our relationships will be maintained as we go through all of the ups and downs of this life. I think it's fair to say that even those among us uh, who aren't very emotional, uh, that those of us who are maybe more of the strong and silent type, right? We're not the most outgoing. We don't seem like the type of person outwardly that wants to be part of community. Uh, Yet, those also want to, at a fundamental level, be part of such a community. You see, while we all might envision community in different ways... And while we all might have different styles and different tastes in the way that we approach relationships, uh, we all have this desire for belonging, don't we? And when we open up the pages of Scripture, uh, we see that mankind was indeed made for such relationships. Uh, From the first pages of Genesis, where we see that God said that it was not good for man to be alone. And so he created woman and the institution of marriage to fulfill that need. Uh, to the rest of the Bible, where we find God creating and forming the covenant community and both the Old and the New Testaments, uh, we see that, that God created man for fellowship. We are made to love God in relationship with him with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are made to love our neighbor as ourself in relationship with them as well. And so God gives us community, whether it be the community of the family or of the state or of the church, in order to fulfill that purpose He has for us in His design and creating us. But as we all know and experience, our fellowship and our place and our sense of belonging in this world is just another thing that has been deeply marred by the reality of sin. As we all know, sin not only disrupts our relationship with God, it also does what? It disrupts our relationships with one another. And the more significant those relationships are, uh, the more deeply we feel wounded and discouraged when they become disrupted by sin. And I think it's fair to say that this is why so many people struggle in the church. Because when sin injures our relationship to the church, whether it be because of our own sin, or the sin of other people, or both, which it often is how it goes, uh, we feel like, well now I have no belonging in what was supposed to be the earthly outpost of my heavenly home. Indeed, many people leave the church because of this sense of alienation. So, why do I bring this up? Well, I bring it up because here in chapter 6 of the book of Galatians, uh, we see Paul giving direction on how to create such a community in light of, yes, our many sins and flaws, but especially he gives this direction in light of the gospel of grace. This is about creating gospel community, especially in light of, the problem of our sin. Paul teaches us here that those who are in Christ by faith are to humble themselves by caring for one another spiritually, by bearing one another's burdens, and by engaging in self-examination before critically examining others. Those three things are how we are to humble ourselves and live together by caring for one another, by bearing one another's burdens, and by critically examining ourselves before we do that to others. And as we will see, these three things are key to becoming, again, a community where God's people uh, feel that they, they truly belong despite their sins and despite their struggles and despite their many infirmities. So let's begin then by examining how we are to spiritually care for one another. Uh, There in verse 1, Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice here is that simple statement, that, that opener there, where he calls them brethren. Paul says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Uh, Now, this right here, what it does is it really sets the tone and the context for everything that, that is about to follow in Paul's admonition. Paul here is reminding us that we are to think of ourselves as a family. You see, the church is not simply a theology club. The church is not a emotional support group, first and foremost, nor is it a political activist organization. No, the church is, first and foremost, a family. All of us here today are brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are all identified with Christ and because we've all received the spirit of adoption if we've come to faith in Jesus uh, just look back to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 6 in addressing the Galatians there he he says but when the fullness of the time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You see, if, if we are in Christ, what's happened is that we've been humbled by the Spirit of God to see our sin, but to also see our our need for Christ, therefore, so that we've taken a hold of Christ by our Spirit-given faith, and we've thus received God as our Father in Christ. As the old saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so likewise, uh, despite all of our different backgrounds here, This morning. And despite all of our different personality types, and despite all of our various sins and struggles, in Christ, we all have the same standing before God the Father. All of us are brothers and sisters in Christ, we are brethren. And so Paul begins this admonition here by reminding us of this reality and by addressing us in light of this reality. But then he immediately moves on to instruct us in how to care for one another then as brothers and sisters. Especially how to care in that difficult situation with a brother or sister who is struggling spiritually or with a sin and backsliding. He goes on to say, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the next thing that I want you to notice there is that statement, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, overtaken. Uh, Think back to our Lord's instructions that he gives for recovering sinners in Matthew 18. What what does he teach? Well, he teaches that we are to first privately and graciously confront the person who has offended us or attempt to. And the purpose is to recover them from their condition. Then he says that if, if that fails, that we are to then bring along someone else. To confront that individual. That person is to, that that second person is to function as a mediator and a witness of sorts. Um, And then finally, if that fails, then we are to bring it to the church or to the elders who will then deal with it pastorally, um, up to and including discipline if necessary. And you see, each step along the way, Jesus says that we are to close the matter if they repent, especially if if we have achieved reconciliation with them to where we can then tangibly forgive them. You see, this this implies that we are to do it in a spirit of grace while being overtly critical and harsh with them. Because the goal is not to antagonize things. The goal is to reconcile things. And yet... Again, as our Lord says, if there's a clear pattern of sin that begins to disrupt a person's life, or if there is an aggravated and deliberate sin that is committed, the type that causes offense, as our Lord says in Matthew 18, then yes, we are to confront them in humility and in grace. And again, that's precisely what Paul is speaking about here in the beginning of chapter 6. As one commentator put it, in describing what what this situation is. He says, we prefer to take the verb as meaning if a man is surprised in a fault. That is, if he is overtaken in a fault before he can escape from it. The, The idea here is that this person is overtaken in a sin, not necessarily by surprise, but to the extent that now they can't get out of it. Now they're beginning to backslide in their lifestyle. In other words, they've, they've fallen into the works of the flesh that we looked at a couple months ago in the previous chapter, and it's obvious that they have done so. So again, uh, this is referring to the offender that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 18. And just like in Matthew 18, we don't immediately move to discipline such an offender, though if someone does something radical like commits murder, and it's clear they're guilty, right? The, the session will immediately take action. But normally, ordinarily, we are to move to a humble and gentle confrontation for the purpose, again, of restoration and of moving on in hope that the Spirit will work in that way. And so just as a quick side note, th- this is really key to understanding what's In view here. And if you're thinking about, okay, in what context should I make this move to start Matthew 18? Well, again, Paul here is speaking of a sin that leaves someone in a state where they need to be restored. This isn't talking about everyday struggles or petty annoyances with somebody. This is a situation where if it can be corrected... You're going to walk away saying, man, I just helped that brother out. Um, That brother's now been restored. It has to be that level of offense or that level of an issue. And so Paul instructs us in, in how to approach this individual and this situation. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself... Lest you also be tempted. Uh, Now, again, when Paul says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one, he's referring back to the same group that he called brethren. Uh, Those who are spiritual are those who have received that spirit of adoption that we just read about in chapter 4. And this is also uh, consistent with what we've seen um, in in Galatians and in the rest of the New Testament. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God are called spiritual. That's what the word spiritual means um, in the New Testament. It's not so much talking about someone who's uh, really intuitive or, or, right, they're, they're just into spiritual matters. Spiritual in the Bible means someone who's filled with the Spirit. Again, thinking back to chapter 5, this is someone who exhibits the fruit of the Spirit. They are characterized by things like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and the rest of it. And so Paul commands such people in their state of spiritual health and spiritual stability to be willing to, to reach out and to help those who are backsliding. They are to reach out and they are to seek their restoration. From their position of spiritual health and spiritual strength. You see, brothers and sisters, when we are drawn into fellowship with Christ. So that we experience his love and and come to love him in return. And experience all these sweet fruits of the spirit. That can't simply be a me and Jesus type of thing that I keep to myself. Again, we are made to love God and our neighbor. Enjoying fellowship with Christ is not just a recreation like sitting in a hot tub and being on vacation. No, it's to be something that motivates us to want to serve and help those who are in need, especially those who are spiritually struggling. Out of the abundance that we have in Christ, we are to care for one another spiritually and so again, Paul here says, "Brethren, you who are spiritual, reach out and help such a person." Now, just to be clear, just to, to qualify this, this is not an invitation to be a spiritual busybody in the church, or to think that you're Holy Spirit Junior, whose job it is to straighten out everybody. Um, in fact, Paul's going to address the type of thing that that leads to that mentality here in a moment. Again, the gravity of the situation here is speaking of something that is. Clear and distinct. This person is clearly having issues spiritually. Uh, This is not, he likes Bovink more than Turretin and, you know, I need to have a talk with him about this. No, this is serious. And so we need to care for one another spiritually in this way. And we need to be willing to get our hands dirty to do so but we need to do it in the right context and with the right attitude. And so again, that's, that's what Paul is communicating here when he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. So there again, it's done in a spirit of gentleness, which has a connotation of a spirit of humility again, in our day and age when we're dealing with the culture and we're, we're reacting against the confusion of the culture and, and the sexual revolution that's, that's touching every part of culture, um, along with the general atmosphere of culture wars that's going on, uh, many of us in the church, we feel tempted to act in a knee-jerk way out of a spirit of harshness. We're out of a spirit of masculine bravado with one another. And so virtues like gentleness are often downplayed in our current cultural climate, at least within the church that's standing against things. And sometimes we even see gentleness and kindness as being a sign of weakness or as even being a vice. And yet as we saw last time we were in Galatians... What do we see? We saw that gentleness is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? It's something that Christians must exhibit. And it's a part of the fruit of the Spirit because that is how Christ has dealt with us. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29. He says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. And so you see, dear church, in caring for the wayward in caring for the backsliders, and in seeking their restoration, we need to follow our Lord in this spirit. If you are spiritual, as Paul says, and qualified to confront and come alongside such a person, then you need to exhibit that spirit of gentleness. And if this is something that, again, you struggle with, or if in general you you wrestle with what this looks like, again, just just consider that last phrase there, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. And that means exactly what it sounds like it means. Paul is saying, don't be harsh, because guess what, one day it could be you. In other words, don't think for a moment that you are spiritual, as Paul says, because you're inherently more virtuous or more self-righteously faithful than they are. Again, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We are all equal in our legal and relational status as children of God. And so as we often say, to remind ourselves, but for the grace of God, there go I. That needs to be our attitude. And it will eliminate the arrogance from us in dealing with these types of situations where we need to have a tough conversation Now Paul will develop this theme of self-reflective humility in the verses ahead, uh, but the the main thing that I want you to consider here is that uh, you are to not only approach your brother or sister in a spirit of gentleness, but you are to treat them the way that you would want to be treated in such a situation. In other words, the golden rule applies to those who are in sin just as it applies to anyone else. Uh, This is also what it looks like and what it means to care for one another. Treating others, even those who are in sin, the way that you would want to be treated. But this is really key to making the church a place of belonging for Christ's sheep. It needs to be a place where even those who've grievously fallen can know that they will be received and restored by their brothers without a spirit of arrogance and without a spirit of posturing and without a spirit of domineering over them. And even if they are unrepentant, while proper boundaries may need to be put up with the backsliding sinner. Yet our gracious and caring attitude still needs to be exhibited so that it stings their conscience. And so restore those who are overtaken by sin in a spirit of gentleness. So that's first. That brings us then to consider the second element of gospel community according to Paul here. Namely, how we are to also not only care for one another spiritually, but also bear one another's burdens. And we see that in verse 2. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's such a simple and yet it's such a profound statement, isn't it? Yet it's also a statement that's hard for us to actually follow because as sinners we're naturally curved in on ourselves. But just consider for a moment. How much better things would be if we all truly followed this commandment in life to bear one another's burdens, if everybody did that. Again, if we take the golden rule and apply it to what Paul says here, I think we can all agree that we would feel a place of belonging in a world or in a community where we were all willing to bear one another's burdens rather than reject or ostracize one another based upon our burdens. So what does this mean though? What what does this require of us? What does it mean to bear one another's burdens? Well, first let's examine this command as the law of Christ, as Paul calls it at the end of the verse. Then let's think of it in light of the example of Christ. So the law of Christ and the example of Christ are the two things that we're going to think about and fleshing out what it means to bear one another's burdens. Recall, after admonishing the Galatians, Paul said, back in chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15, he said to them, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, Paul says that the second table of the law, um, right, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that is the law of Christ. Remember, we considered that last time. And as I brought up last time, I agree with the marrow of modern divinity when Uh, The author of that and those who've commented on it and agreed with it have pointed out that the entire law of God is the law of Christ, both the first and the second table, as we receive it from the hands of Jesus Christ, from his gracious hands, especially uh, when we think about the fact that he has fulfilled it as a covenant of works on our behalf. You see, we are now free from the stipulations of the law as a covenant of works, and so it no longer forms the basis of our relationship with God, yet it still remains the rule of life for believers. We are now free in Christ to pursue obedience to the law of Christ in imitation of Christ. And so, this is the law of Christ, right? That we are to bear one another's burdens in loving our neighbor as ourself. This is still God's law for you. And so, again, in fleshing that out, let's consider then, secondly, the example of Christ in bearing one another's burdens. And if you think about it, this is what Jesus did with both his passive and active obedience, Of course, Christ perfectly loved his neighbor as himself throughout his earthly ministry. We see that in his compassion for sinners. We see him healing the sick, exercising demons. We see him feeding the hungry and having compassion on the multitudes. You see, Jesus was willing to bear the burden of others and loving his neighbor as himself. But especially when he took upon our iniquities, as he did on the cross, especially there do we see Jesus bearing the burden not only for his neighbor, but the burden even of his enemies he was willing to take upon. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. We were enemies, and yet Christ died for us and took upon our burden the obligation of the covenant of works that stood against us. You see, Jesus, by nature, should be the judge and the conqueror of the enemies of God. That's what we see so often in the Psalms and in the Prophets. That God will one day set this world to rights by judging his enemies. And yet when Christ came, what did he first do? Well, he died for his enemies. And he took upon their obligations and their burdens in order to befriend them and to reconcile them to himself. And so this is also what it means to bear one another's burdens. It means to follow Christ in caring for one another and in being inconvenienced by one another even when we find one another to be unlovely. Even when there's no good reason for us to care for one another in this way. Now of course, none of us can bear the burden that Jesus carried to the cross nor are we expected to bear such a burden. After all, It was definitively done away with when Jesus cried out, It is finished, in his dying breaths. And yet that's all the more reason for us to be willing to bear one another's burdens. Because Christ, you see, has lightened our load by freeing us from the curse of the law and from the wrath of God. Again, think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 29 and 30. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, we should obey the law of Christ, especially with God's people, especially with one another not only out of gratitude to Christ for what He has done for us, but we should do so out of the joy and out of the levity that we experience in union with Him. And again, if you are lacking in that sort of joy and levity that compels you to serve and care for one another and bear one another's burdens, then simply recount to yourself what Christ has done for you. All of your obligations have been met before God. And everything that you need to suffer due to your sin and guilt, it's all been taken away by our Lord Jesus Christ. And God has now been reconciled to you so that you are friends with Him. Even more, so that you are sons and daughters of God. And so that means that that God is now going to care for you throughout your life. Even through your trials and even through your tribulations. This means that you should now have the freedom and the confidence and the resources to care for others in their trials and in their tribulations. Again, being in a Christ-centered, Spirit-led frame of life shouldn't lead us to live in a self-contained bubble. No, it should cause us to follow our Lord in caring for one another, and in bearing one another's burdens. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verses 3 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verses 3 through 4. Look at what Paul says here. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So there you see that we receive comfort so that we might be enabled and empowered to comfort others in what they are going through. And so as Christians, when we see one another struggling and being burdened by the issues of this life, our knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be, oh, there he goes again. Oh, what's her deal now? No, instead, we should reach out to comfort one another and to bear one another's burdens in love. That's what we are called to. But with that, then thirdly, Paul also calls us to, bear our own burdens by being willing to be self-critical before we decide to criticize others. And that's what you see in verses 3 through 5 of Galatians 6. He says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, what's interesting about that first statement there is that it appears to have been a popular idiom at the time, possibly related to Greek philosophy. For example, Plato says almost the exact same thing as verse 3 in his Apology of Socrates. That statement there that if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Uh, So this, again, it appears to be a wisdom saying from the time that the New Testament was written. And Paul is appropriating it here into this framework of humility and care for others that he's seeking to impress upon the church of Galatia. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And that word for there, for, uh, connects this to the previous command. It it could also be translated as therefore. Uh, That previous command to be willing to bear one another's load, he follows up there saying, if you think that you're something, when you're nothing, you're deceiving yourself. In other words, don't think that you are so good and great that you're above others who are on the struggle bus. No, you're just as weak and just as prone to struggle as they are, even if in the providence of God, he hasn't put you in a place of hardship at the moment. But this phrase, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he has nothing, he deceives himself, that's something that we need to meditate on and take to heart in our day and age. You see, due to the influence of the media, especially due to the influence of things like social media, we are prone to make something of ourselves and to be self-assured in what we have made of ourselves on those platforms. There's that statement going around about social media that if the product is free, then guess what? You're the product. That's certainly a valid observation as to how those platforms work. But at the bottom of it, the logic of social media is to sell yourself, isn't it? You are to put on a front and to put on a persona that gets people's attention, whether it maybe be a subtle intellectual front that makes you out to be more sophisticated and refined and educated than you actually are, or whether it's a a filter that makes you appear to to be more beautiful and glamorous than you actually are. Either way, the, the logic of social media is to project yourself to be something in order to get that dopamine hit of likes and shares. Though, again, there are plenty of helpful uses with social media. But you see, Paul calls us back down to earth here with this statement. And he calls us back down to earth for the purpose of sober self-examination. As he says in verse 4 and going there into verse 5, he says for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he has nothing he deceives himself but let each one examine his own work and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another for each one shall bear his own load The idea here is that we are to engage in sober self-examination not in reference in reference to others but simply in reference to ourselves, and to our duty before the Lord. Don't compare yourselves to others. Compare yourself to what God says and how you yourself are measuring up to it. And the idea is that if there is to be any rejoicing or boasting, that it's to occur before the Lord alone as He is the one who is at work in you to perform that. In other words, we aren't to post about it or humble brag about it on social media. Instead, we're to simply keep it between us and the Lord. As Jesus says, when we fast and pray, what are we to do? We are to do it in secret, right? So that our Father in heaven will reward us in secret. And this is the same frame that is commended to us here by the Apostle Paul. Paul. He says that in examining ourselves, that if we have something to rejoice over in our lives, whether we are in a good spot spiritually, whether we've been blessed in different ways, that should be done to the Lord and not in reference to others or before others. As Paul says in verse 5, this is how each one of us is to bear our own load, We are to engage in humble self-examination and repent and humble ourselves where needed. And we are to likewise rejoice in the work that God is doing within us. But this is important to emphasize because a critical and a self-righteous spirit, it's not a confident spirit, is it? It's usually a very insecure spirit, isn't it? Those who are insecure And not dealing with it in a healthy way before the Lord. They are usually the ones that want to jump on top of others. And get in other people's faces. So that they might feel better about themselves. Or so that they can brag or boast about it. There's many different ways that it can manifest. And surely this is how the Pharisees and the Judaizers in Galatia could be at times. As they were pursuing a legal religion while downplaying the radical nature of God's free grace. Think about what Jesus says concerning those who are of a legal spirit in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4. He says that they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders. You see, instead of bearing the burdens of others, what do they do? They flip it around and make others bear burdens. That's what a critical and self-righteous spirit looks like. But you see, for those who have had their burdens loosened by Christ, they should have the confidence to examine their own sin for what it is and to humble themselves before God while also humbly giving God the glory for His work of grace in their lives. And again, this will result in a disposition that truly cares for others and that is willing to carry their burdens with them without adding extra burdens onto them. And so when you are tempted to be critical of your brethren, remember to stop and to first be critical of yourself, casting the log from your own eye, as our Lord says. And then remember to focus on the work of God's grace in your own life and rejoice in it before the Lord. And you see, then and only then, Will you be ready and willing to be gracious to others and to truly care for others as we are called to do as the body of Christ? But this is how we can create a community where God's sheep feel secure and where they feel like they truly belong. By humbly caring for one another spiritually, by bearing one another's burdens, and by being self-critical rather than being critical primarily of others. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, how awesome is your grace towards us as those who by nature are your enemies. Lord, we often do not walk through our daily life meditating upon who we are and who you are, We often think about what we have projected ourselves to be, the masks that we wear, more than we think about who we actually are and who you are and what you have done for us in light of who we actually are. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would build us up as your church, as the temple of the living God, as the bride of your son, as the body of Christ. We pray that you would build us up to reflect this pattern that the Apostle Paul lays out here. We pray that we would be those who spiritually care for one another and are willing to have hard conversations, but to do it in a spirit of gentleness, lest we ourselves are also tempted. Lord, help us to be those who who bear and carry one another's burdens, who check in on each other and find out how we're really doing, And, Lord, make us those who would be willing to help when we see our brothers and sisters in distress. And we pray, Lord, that we would also, again, be those who have an inward gaze into our own life before we seek to meddle in others' lives, being critical of them unjustly and uncharitably. Lord, we know that we have everything we need to... Reflect this manner of life, because it's the manner of life that your Son possesses. Being your eternal Son, taken on flesh to redeem sinners. And so we pray that his Spirit be at work within us, to remind us of our sin and our humble self-reflection, but to also be amazed by your grace as it's been given to us in him through the Spirit. Lord, renew our hearts, renew our love for you, our love for others and our charity towards one another and towards all men. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.